1. John chapter 1. Um, so the last couple of weeks, we've gone over John's prologue. That's verses 1 to 18. So you have the very first few verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it all points to Jesus Christ as him being God himself, the Yah- Yahweh of the Old Testament. We see his forerunner, John the Baptist. And, uh, you know, the, the Pharisees sent priests and Levites Levites to come and ask him, who are you? What are you doing here? Why are you baptizing Jews? Why are you here? And they say, um, they ask him, they say, are you Elijah? He says, no. Well, are you the prophet? He says, no. Before that, he says, before they even ask him those questions, he says, no, I'm not the Christ. Because he's the one that's supposed to point out the Christ, point out the Messiah. And so he says this, he says, um, then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. So, and then he proclaims Jesus as being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in in verse 29. But John has disciples, and some of these disciples are the ones who will follow Jesus um, in his ministry. So we come to verse 35, and let's go ahead and read it. It says, again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. We find out in verse 40 that one of the disciples is Andrew. The other one is most likely John the Apostle. John never mentions himself by name. Um, but most likely, just by reading it, most likely it's John. And it says, And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. The thing that struck me about this is John remembers the exact hour that he met Jesus. Probably writing 60 years later. And so that's just an awesome thing that we see here in God's word. Um... Then in verse 40, and this is where we're going to pick up today. So let's pray. Father, um, some of us remember the exact hour, the moment when we came to know you. Lord, really, that's the greatest day of our lives. It's a day that rings out for all of eternity. Lord, as we hold the testimony that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, And you have come to save us. And you are coming back to rule and to reign and to judge. And um, just thank you so much for taking the initiative in that. Lord, it's such a wonderful thing. I pray that you'd speak to us today, that you would disciple us, and that you would just show us a great amount of mercy, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So picking up in verse 40, it says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So Andrew, his name means manly. And I wish my parents would have named me manly. I mean, come on. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. So One thing you notice here is John translates words for his readers. Most like he's writing to people who speak Greek. And he's translating the Aramaic. um, Messias is what it would be in Aramaic. And translates it to Christos Christ. And we'll see him do this a number of times. Now verse 42, and it says, And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas. Again, the Aramaic word um, for stone is Cephas, which is translated a stone or Petros. And this is awesome. We don't hear much about Andrew in the Bible. We only see him a handful of times. Each time in the Gospel of John, though, he's bringing people to the Lord, right? First, he's bringing Peter to the Lord, and um, then we'll see him bring a young boy with his sack lunch to the Lord, Jesus divides the loaves and the fishes, feeds a multitude of people. And then we see him bring some Greeks towards the end of the gospel to Jesus as well. He's just just faithful at doing this. 
I mean, if that's what my life is defined by, is just by me bringing people, saying, this is Jesus. What else could I ask for? What else is there? So think of it. He's only mentioned a few times. We never hear a great sermon from him. We never see his name on the title of one of the epistles in the New Testament. We never hear about, I believe he did miracles because Jesus sent them out and told him to cast out demons and heal all manner of things. But we never hear a specific count of him doing any miracles or raising the dead. What did Peter do, though? Peter has two letters that are, have his name on them. The Gospel of Mark is most likely Peter's testimony to Mark, and Mark's the one who wrote it down. He did miracles. He raised the dead by the power of the Lord. It's awesome. Peter did all these things. Just think of it. Who could be a product of your faithful ministry? Who could be a product of your faithful ministry? I mean, just think about that for a minute. You don't know who you're talking to. You don't know how God's going to use somebody in the future. You know what? You may be the only people I ever preached to in my entire ministry. But one of you guys may do something wonderful, maybe used by, mightily by the Lord. Or you may teach somebody else who's going to be used mightily in the Lord. That is a great hope. That is a great hope. One of my favorite stories is of uh, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was, um, back in the 1800s, was a very, very popular preacher. I still have books of his today. I mean, has everybody heard of Charles Spurgeon? So most of us have. Um, His conversion is is just an awesome one. He's walking to church one day. It's a huge snowstorm. And he's walking out there. He can't make it to the church he's going to go to, who has a very prominent pastor, preacher, very popular speaker. And um, so he stops off at this little Methodist church. There's just a handful of people there. The the head pastor, the senior pastor, whatever, um, was not able to be there. He was snowed in during a snowstorm. So uh, Spurgeon says this, this guy gets up, and he's probably a... He says he looked like he would have been a shoe salesman or a a tailor or something of that sort. And his text was, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45, 22. And these are Spurgeon's own words. It says, The man only preached for about 15 minutes and didn't have much to say. And he mispronounced much of what he did say. You guys feeling what he's saying? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You know what, if you're pronouncing words in the Bible, sometimes you just have to act like you know what they say, all right? <laughs> just, just act like it, fake it, fake it until you make it right. Okay, so um, he mispronounced much of what he did say. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had managed to spin out about ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me. As if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look miserable. Thanks, I must sound dry. (laughs) Thank you, Daisha. That's my lovely assistant, Daisha, and my daughter. He said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. You know, Spurgeon obviously thought very highly of Methodist preachers. <laughs> Young man, look unto Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. Then Spurgeon says, I saw at once the way of salvation. 
I knew not what else he said. I did not take much notice, notice of it. I was so possessed with one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, look, oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. Isn't that awesome? This little guy just gets up. He's faithful. His preacher doesn't show up, and he just gets up with his Bible in his hand, picks one text, and just starts going off on it. You know? It wasn't some great man who did that. That's encouraging to me. It should be encouraging to all of us. Just one word God can use to change somebody, to change their heart, to cause them to inherit eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. That's awesome. So Andrew, he's the quiet man in the scriptures. He was a faithful disciple, though, and we see him in Mark 13. This is the Olivet Discourse. And he asked Jesus a question. Um, he, it says, uh, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled. So he's just a faithful disciple. He's asking questions of his Lord. Lord, when are you coming back? When are you going to set up your kingdom? Because that's what disciples do, right? We ask questions of the Lord. We want to know what he says. It is said that uh, Andrew died. He was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Mesopotamia. I didn't find a whole... When you, when you look through church history on these guys, there's always these differing accounts, so it's kind of hard to kind of nail down exactly what happened to them. But that's what tradition says, that he was crucified on an X-shaped cross. So uh, go to verse 41. Back in John, it says, He first found his own brother, Simon, What did uh, Cain say to God? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? What does Andrew say? I am my brother's keeper. I'm going to go to my brother first, and I'm going to tell him I have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. So he says, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas which again is the Aramaic, which is translate, translated a stone, Petros. So Jesus renames Simon, gives him the name Cephas, and, um, and it's literally translated Petros, or, or we call him Peter. And this name is defined in Matthew 16. So go ahead and go there, Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 13. And it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? Or, sorry, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, a small stone. And on this rock, Petra, Petra is a, a different word. It means a massive rock, a foundation rock. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So Peter's confession is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so Jesus says, you are Petros, you are a small stone. But upon this massive rock, I will build my church. The massive rock of your confession. What you just said of me is true. What do we all believe? When it comes down to it, to be a Christian, what do you believe? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Right? That is what we believe. And that is what the church is built on. This is also a common occurrence in the Old Testament that God changes people's names, right? We see this a few times. Number one, um, think of Abraham. And he does this to, to mark out their divine callings. Right? So Peter's divine calling 
is to, to be the rock, to be that stone. Genesis 17.5 says of Abraham, or Abram, it says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude, for I have made you a father of many nations. So God defines what Abraham's calling is, to be a father of many nations. Then you have Jacob. Jacob spent his life manipulating things around him. Think about when uh, Jacob wants his brother's birthright. What does he do? He tricks him with a bowl of red stew to sell his birthright to him. And then he dresses up as his brother. You know, they go out and slaughter a goat, put goat skins. I mean, this guy must have been really hairy, right? It says he was red and hairy. I think of Elmo, not Esau. But... (laughs) But he dresses up his brother, makes himself self smell bad, and he gives him some, some goat to eat when uh, Jacob really wanted venison. But, you know, I guess his t- taste buds were going as well as his eyes were. But he was, he was constantly tricking people. He tricked Laban into giving him the, his flocks. And so then in uh, Genesis 32, and I want you to go there. Genesis 32, very first book in your Bible. Says then Jacob, so verse um, chapter 32, Genesis, verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint, and he wrestled with him. And, And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. What does Jacob mean? Heel catcher, supplanter, right? He said, um, so he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. God prevails, and that means God prevails, or prince with God, or um, it's, it's kind of an idiomatic term, means governed by God. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why, do you, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. So God changes his name. Who was this he was wrestling with? It was Jesus. It was a Christophany. It was the angel of the Lord. Right? Because he says, I've seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. How about Gideon? His name wasn't changed, but God told him something about himself, right? So go to Judges chapter 6, verse 11. Judges right after Joshua, right before 1 Samuel. So Judges 6, verse 11. And it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizirite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So just to get the picture here, many of you guys have heard this before. He's threshing wheat in a winepress. He's hiding his food from the Midianites because the Midianites would come in and take all of their wheat for themselves and then leave them with nothing. So he's threshing wheat. What you do with threshing wheat, you pull a big stone around it usually. You take it with a pitchfork. You throw it up in the air, and the wind comes and drives away the chaff, and the the wheat falls down, okay, because the chaff is real light and fine. And the wheat falls down, then you gather up the wheat, and you make bread out of it, right? And so he's doing this in a wine press. Not the best place to do it. And And he's hiding. So, you know, he's scared. And what does the Lord say to him? Verse 12, and it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with, with you, you mighty man of valor. So he says, he's scared, he's sitting there, he's doing this. And the angel of the Lord comes up and says, Yahweh. Remember, it's in all caps there. Lord is in all caps, which is a good thing to notice here in, this, in these verses. 
He said, the Lord is with you. Yahweh is with you, you mighty man of valor. God's pointing out something that he wants to do with Gideon. And Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord. Notice that's lowercase. Lord is Adonai there. If the Lord is with us, if Yahweh is with us, why then has this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Notice Lord's all caps there, Yahweh. Then Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent you? Have not I sent you? The Lord knows us, right? He knows what he wants to do with us, and he defines that calling sometimes. Even if it's contrary to who we are, or who we think we are. Because why? Because he's the one who works through us. Through us. And just think about it. Some of us, what have you been called in your life? You know, probably a lot of stuff. Especially while you're driving. Right? Some have been called... Troublemakers. I remember growing up in school, it was kind of a title for me and my friends, troublemakers. Some are called lazy, cowards, good-for-nothing eggheads, or like Jacob, manipulators, tricksters, connivers, deceivers. Or how about even great in the eyes of the world? You're successful, you're powerful. All for the world, though. And what does the Lord do with us? He changes us. He takes us. He takes who we are, and he molds us into the people that he wants wants us to be. I remember one of my first prayers. Before I was even a Christian, God was working on my heart dramatically. And it was, Lord, make me the man you want me to be. Give me wisdom. Because I knew I had screwed up my life, screwed up my son for a time. And I knew that I was not going the way that was helpful for anybody. So I said, Lord, make me the man you want me to be. And he made me a Christian. That's the kind of man he wants me to be, one who submits to the Lord. And when I don't, he speaks to me and he chastises me and he brings me back to himself. And he continues that process of making me into the man he wants me to be, just like every single one of us. Right? He is faithful, and he will complete the work that he started in you. And how do we do this? How do we become what God has called us to be? By taking heed to his word, by abiding in Jesus Christ, by walking in the power of the Spirit, right? And how do you walk in the power of the Spirit? By obeying the word, by believing and obeying the word. Remember, this is first a book to be believed. And then as you believe it, you obey it. You do what it says. You agree with God that his ways are right and that what he says is true. And then his power is shown through your life. Like Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6 says, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. If you're acknowledging him in all your ways... He's not going to have a hard time putting you on the path that he wants you to be on, right? If you're constantly turning to him, Lord, I want to do this for you. Lord, I want to not do this because of you. We acknowledge him in all of our ways. And then I ask, when did Simon truly stand up and become Peter the rock? When did he truly do that? Was it in the Garden of Gethsemane when he pulls out a sword and lops off Malchus's ear. That was him trying to be the rock on his own, right? Lord, I'll follow you. I'll never deny you. He was trying to be Peter on his own. It definitely wasn't when he was denying the Lord. It's kind of like Peter went from being a marshmallow to a stone, right? Scared for his own life, even in front of little servant girls. Was it when Jesus was sitting with them on the beach and says, Simon, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. Was it at that point? 
I would have to say it was on the day of Pentecost. Right? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. It says in Acts 2.14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, and then he gives the first evangelistic sermon in the history of the church. And how many people are converted that one day? 3,000. 3,000 people are converted that day. Was he the rock because 3,000 people were converted? It was a, he was a rock because he stood up and he did what he was called to do. He fulfilled that calling in his life. And then how does he die? Church history tells us that he was crucified upside down after watching his wife be crucified and beaten and raped. He was a rock. He died well. He finished well. Verse 43 says, The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. So Jesus is going to leave the Judean wilderness. He wants to go up to the area of Galilee, um, which is far north, probably about, depending on where you place Bethabara, the wilderness of, if that's where he is, um, the wilderness, the Judean wilderness, then it could be about 30 miles, or it could be about uh, 15 to 20 miles, depending on where you place that. Nobody's 100% sure where Bethabara was or Bethany, this place where, where he was. Um, so he finds Philip and he says, follow me. And here you have um, Philip being called. The other guys, they just come and see Jesus. This is Jesus' first called disciple, Philip. We see later that Peter, James, and John, and we see this in the synoptics where they're actually called by Jesus. So in uh, Matthew 4, 18 through 20, it says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. So when you just read Matthew, it's kind of like, well, yeah, Jesus just walking along. He says, Hey, you two, follow me. With no clear reason why they would follow him. Like Jesus just put a kind of a trance over them or something. But what we see here in John is that Jesus had done work on them beforehand. John the Baptist had pointed Jesus out to them, and they were already beginning to follow him. But that's their official call. So Philip, lover of horses, is what his name means. You only see Philip a few times as well. We see him in John 6, 5 through 7. He's going to be um, tested by Jesus, says, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, but every one, that every one of them may have a little. He also gets rebuked by Jesus for not knowing who he was. John 14, 9 through 6, or 6 through 9 says, Nine through six, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you have known him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? So, the next time we see Philip, um, actually, I'm thinking of Nathaniel. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. Um, Philip is, in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, it says he was born at Bethsaida, which we know he was. It says that um, Peter and Andrew were also born there, Peter's house. Later, we find it's a Capernaum, but most likely he was, he was born in Bethsaida, which means house of fish. Um, he was the first called by the name Disciple. He labored diligently in Upper Asia and suffered martyrdom at Helopolis in Phrygia. He was scourged, thrown into prison, and afterwards crucified in A.D. 54. So, again, not a lot is known about Philip. Verse 44, it says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, again, house of fish, the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip found Nathanael, Nathanael means gift of God, 
and is called Bartholomew in, in the other Gospels, which means son of Ptolemy, Ptolemy in the other Gospels. Nathaniel's never mentioned in the synoptics. It's always Bartholomew. Um, John never mentions Bartholomew. He always mentions Nathaniel. Um, also, in the synoptics, Philip is closely connected with Bartholomew. When you read the list of the disciples, it's always uh, Philip and Bartholomew or Nathaniel. Um, there's an old apocryphal book called The Martyrdom of Bartholomew. and states that he was placed in a sack and cast into the sea, and that's how he died. Other reports say that he was crucified as well. But most of what we do know about the man is stated here, and we'll see him again at the end of this gospel. Uh, Peter, James, John, and Nathaniel are in a boat. Remember, Peter says, I'm going fishing. He's coming with me. This is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then they see Jesus off on the, on the, on the shore. And he says, children, have you caught any fish? And they say no. And he says, cast the net on the other side. And they pull in this huge amount of fish. Peter jumps in, you know, after getting dressed, it says, and uh, swims to him. And Philip was there as well. So verse 45 says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I believe, I mean, just think about this. Jesus picks up Philip. They walk all the way to Galilee. Just, let's just say, for argument's sake, that that is a 30-mile trek from the Judean wilderness to Galilee. He has 30 miles to talk with Jesus on the road. It reminds me of another account that we have that in, in, in Luke's gospel. The two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. It says uh, in Luke 24, 25, it says, Then he, Jesus... And remember, Jesus kind of is hiding himself from them. They don't know that it's Jesus walking with them. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow, slow of heart to believe, and all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So just imagine Philip's walking with Jesus. He's asking questions. And he's just sharing to him the scriptures about himself, just like he did in Nazareth in the synagogue when everybody tries to throw him off of a cliff. But he has 30 miles. So he comes to um, Nathanael and says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is the one that the Bible talks about. This is the one that the Old Testament prophets and Moses had talked about over and over and over again. It's awesome. So what a time Philip must have had walking with Jesus, right? Just communing with him, learning from him, probably not understanding half of what he was saying. Yeah. And Nathanael said to him, verse 46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Robertson, A.T. Robertson, was a Greek scholar, and he says, this is literally, out of Nazareth can anything good be? He says, there is a tinge of scorn in the question, as if, as if Nazareth had a bad name. Nazareth was probably a small town. Some say that it was most likely at that time about 2,000 people. And we all know how small towns are, right? And Cana was a small town. And usually small towns don't really like each other that much, especially when it comes to high school football, right? Like my wife was from Rollins, Wyoming. Anybody ever been there? Okay. Has anybody driven past it on I-80? You blink and it's gone, right? You know? Where, where did we go? Was it Seminole? And uh, my brother-in-law was telling me, they don't like us from Rollins. You know? It's like, well, I understand that. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that to him. <laughs> <laughs> I love my brother-in-law. I love my family. Um, but just that, that small-town rivalry. Could be what, what he's talking about. Or it could be that Nathaniel doesn't believe a prophet's supposed to come out of Nazareth. You don't see Nazareth mentioned in the Old Testament, right? So Micah 5.2 tells us that the Christ is to come out of Bethlehem. It says, 
in Micah 5, 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Right? That's the prophecy given, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And perhaps Nathaniel's thinking, well, we all know that the Christ comes from Bethlehem, not Nazareth, right? not Beantown. And he doesn't quite know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? That wasn't told him yet. But Matthew 2.23 says something interesting. So I want you to go there. Matthew 2, verse 23. And this is when Joseph and Mary come back. And it says, And they came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So there's a lot of dispute on this. Where in the world does it say that he's going to be called a Nazarene? You can't find that anywhere in the Old Testament, right? Like, I don't know, I didn't look. I did. (laughs) Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And what does Nazarene mean? It's Netzarene, okay? That would be the Hebrew or even the, more of the Aramaic translation of this. And it means a sprout, a shoot, or a branch, okay? So Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch, Hebrew, Netzer. There shall come forth a Netzer shall go, grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest, up, rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he, sh- he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked." Right here, it calls him a netzer, the branch. Jesus is called the branch, the netzer, the netzerine. So that could be what this prophecy is um, pointing to, that he shall be called a Nazarene. But whatever Nathaniel's hang-up was, Philip says, what's Philip's response? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see, right? This is what evangelism is all about, right? Come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Blessed is the man who trusts in him, Psalm 34, 8. Come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come experience him for yourself. Take the time. Look into him. Look at what he says. Look at what he teaches. Look at who he is. And see for yourself who he is. I've tasted and seen my sins have been forgiven. I've been born again, right? I know that this is the one that God spoke of from before the foundation of the world, the one who God speaks of in his Old Testament, prophesies of hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus Christ comes. And now I have hope. I have hope. I have hope for myself. I have hope for my family. I have hope for this world. Well, the world's passing away but I have hope for the people in the world. I have hope that the people that I pray for, that God will touch their lives, right? I have hope in my trials. I got rear-ended the other day, which, uh, Roger, you got to look at that, by the way. (laughs) I was sitting in traffic um, at a Green Arrow, and I just, all of a sudden, whack, you know? I didn't get whiplash or anything. It really wasn't that bad. I, I played it up for my wife so she would rub my sh- shoulders, though. <laughs> but um, even that, because I got out of the car, I was mad, you know? Because I already had, I had figured out what the guy was doing. He's on his phone texting and, you know, runs right into me. 
And even that, okay, just die to yourself. Be kind. He did run off afterwards, so I didn't, you know, get his information. But hey, <laughs> you know, it's just it's the way it goes. This isn't my life. My life is hidden with Christ and God, right? We have hope in our trials that God is going to sanctify us through them and build us up through them. And I have the help of the Holy Spirit, right? I'm not here on my own. Nobody who believes in Jesus Christ is on their own. They have the helper, the advocate, the parakletos, the one who walks alongside you, the one who indwells you, marks you for the day of salvation. Right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are all those who trust in him. So verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. In Greek, the word is doulos. In Hebrew, it would be Yaakov. Right? Yaakov, sound familiar? Jacob would be his name. An Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And again, Jacob means hill catcher, supplanter, deceiver, conniver. And Nathaniel, he says, is governed by God. There is no deceit in you. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? So Jesus must have really struck a chord here, right? How do you know me? He answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And the fig tree could be a picture of him med- meditating on the scriptures. I le- Does anybody here like to go out under a tree and just read? You know, pray. I do. And that's, that was very common for Jews to do. To go under your fig tree was actually almost like a metaphor as well, or an idiom. To go out and uh, meditate on the scriptures. And so he's out there meditating. What is he meditating on? Could it be the life of Jacob? Man, Lord, Jacob is such a scoundrel. He's always tricking his way, manipulating his way through everything. And you did such great works through him. You gave him such revelation, as we'll see in a minute. But Jesus knows Nathaniel. I think of Psalm 139, 1 through 4. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my laying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So again, Jesus is God. He has all knowledge. He knows Nathaniel inside and out. He knows us inside and out. And I think this is also an example to the church. Right? We are to speak God's word. What does Jesus do? He just speaks God's word. He's going to speak it again in a few minutes. And he's going to apply it to himself. He's going to speak God's word. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to speak his word. And what happens? People's hearts are laid bare. 1 Corinthians 14, 24, 25 says, But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever, an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. I pray that unbelievers would come in. They would hear the word, just the simple preaching of the word, and their hearts would be laid bare. They would be convicted of sin, that God would tell them exactly what they're thinking. He would meet them right where they're at. Right? That's what we mean when we say that. That God would meet somebody right where they're at, right in the midst of their sin, their rebellion, their heartache, their pain. And then they would be able to say, God is truly among you. Verse 49 says, Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, which means my great one. He says he translates it as teacher. It became a a word used for teachers too, my great one, my teacher. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? 
you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So let's just take a minute, break verse 51 down. Jesus says, literally, amen, amen, I say to you. Amen, amen. The New King James always translates it as most assuredly. Anybody else have a different translation of that? Truly, truly. What is that? ESV? ESV? Um, uh, the New English Bible says, um, in truth and very truth. So it's like a double affirmation. This is the truth. This is really the truth that he is speaking. So he says, amen, amen, I say to you. You here is plural in Greek. So he's talking to Nathaniel, and he says, Amen, amen, I say to you. So is he talking to all of his disciples, and perhaps to every single reader who reads this gospel? It's plural, okay? And he says, hereafter, and in the Old King James, it says, ye, 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 is always plural. It's a plural pronoun, Okay. He says, hereafter ye shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So I want you guys to go to Genesis 28 so we can see the picture that Jesus just gave to himself. Starting in verse 10. It says, now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place, put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants, and also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and in you all the and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So Jesus saying. I'm that ladder. I'm the gateway to heaven. Right? He is the only one. He is the only one. Jesus is the only name on which we can call and be saved. On which we can call and know God. On which we can call and receive favor and grace and mercy and truth from God. So again, Jesus is saying, I'm that ladder. And you're going to see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Did Nathaniel ever see that? I don't know. We see angels. Um, they minister to Jesus when he's in the wilderness. This probably, that probably happened before this account. Um, we also see angels ministering to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. That could be what it's talking about. It could be talking about the end times. And that's why it says in plural, ye shall see the Son of Man, right? And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And then that title, Son of Man, something Jesus uses of himself over and over, especially in Matthew and the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the Synoptics. But it's the title of... Um, of the, of the Messiah, right? Daniel 7, 13. It says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So this is the son of man. Jesus tells the Pharisees and when he's, um, before he's crucified, he says, I tell you the truth, you will see heaven, um, you'll see the Son of Man 
riding on a cloud, right? That's what this is referring to. One like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. So over and over, John shows us who Jesus is. He takes a look behind the veil and shows us that he is God, that he is Yahweh. He is the one to whom we will all give account. He is the one by which we must all be saved. There is no other. And so what do we do with this? So number one, believe. Are you following Jesus Christ? Are you literally following him? Do you spend time with him? Do you find out what he says? And do you follow what he says? Two, are you leading somebody else to him? Are you leading somebody else to him? Are you praying for people? Looking for those opportunities. I love in Ephesians it says, um, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Are you redeeming the time? Buying it back. Buying it back. Every opportunity that you get to proclaim the name of the Lord, to share him with somebody, are you taking it? I think when we see God face to face, we are going to be so ashamed that we didn't work harder, that we didn't suffer more for his namesake. We're going to be ashamed of that fact. Because when we see him in all his power and all his glory, when we see that he really is omnipresent, that he is everywhere all the time, that he is with us every moment of every day, we will have wished that we have walked so much more boldly and so much more power. Not in fearfulness, not worrying about our own reputations, not worrying about our comfort. We're going to wish every single moment of every single day and every single event of our lives would have been redeemed for Jesus Christ. And then he's merciful and he wipes away every tear from our eyes. Because that's the merciful, patient God that he is. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much again for your word. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to take you for what you say. We want to see you at work in our lives, in the lives of the people that we dearly love. We want to see you do things that we would never believe that could be done. Help us to be faithful. Help us to tell people, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then to walk with him in it. So we praise you, we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.